Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and we have a very international lineup for you this week. Firstly, we're going to hear from someone who's on the ground at the summit in Davos as the World Economic Forum took place this week. We'll be looking at what's shaping those global discussions and what took place behind the scenes. And we'll be turning our attention to Russia, where Vladimir Putin is making some strategic moves to retain skilled workers on home turf. And we'll also be looking at what's happened to the Russian economy since the invasion of Ukraine. And finally, stay with us as we're joined by Anna Gordon from Time magazine to unravel the complex web of the Houthi rebels. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on X at StockNT. Now, first up today, we're going to kick off with Davos. Take a listen to this. The sobering reality is that we are once again competing more intensely across countries than we have in several decades. And this makes the theme of this year's Davos meeting even more relevant, rebuilding trust. This is not a time for conflicts or polarization. This is a time to build trust. This is a time to drive global collaboration more than ever before. That was Ursula von der Leyen, of course, and she was talking at Davos about rebuilding trust as the world leaders rub shoulders with bankers and billionaires to solve the world's problems. Joining me now to discuss is Leela de Kretzer, who is Global Breaking News Editor at Reuters. Leela, you're very welcome to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Now, I just want to start off with... Um, asking you a question about the logistics of being at Davos and, and covering something like this. Obviously, um, for a massive news news agency like Reuters, this is a big story. You're, you're obviously not just covering the main event, but everything that's happening on the margin. So like, do you see this as um, a massive challenge or is it a great networking opportunity for someone like you as well? Um, I think it's both. The The key for us is we need to cover, obviously, the main events. And this year is a year unlike um, many we've seen before. There's major wars going on and a lot of news. Um, so it's not just about sitting around and talking to bankers and asking how they feel. We really had a lot of people who are the main players in how we might get to peace in um, wars. Um, and also, at the same time, you can imagine one of the biggest stories dominating has been uh, the uh, strikes in the Red Sea on ships. Um, well, most of the shipping companies are here, as are um, many of the Middle Eastern leaders uh, who have to be involved in talks, as well as the US, Europe, and the companies that are kind of feeling the impacts of those strikes. Mm. So our job here is, you know, make sure that we're able to cover the news and using what um, what access we have here um, to grab people. Some of that involves chasing people down very snowy streets with really, really, really good boots, which has happened to me a couple of times today. Um, but it's there, there is that. And then in terms of networking, networking for us is really, you know, this is an opportunity for us to meet uh, companies from all over the world. And we have journalists who come in from everywhere. So I was just talking 
talking to uh, our China correspondent, he sat down with a number of Chinese companies here. Um, and what is interesting is we're all talking in the rest of the world about sort of China and its shadow over mm. geopolitics, but actually he's talking to them about how they're feeling about what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, so I guess that's what networking means. But the problem is it's snowy, it's slippery, you have to wear good shoes, you have to run from one thing to another, you have to find a space to talk to someone. Like right now I just had to push someone out of this room so I could get on with you. So those are the kind of challenges, but at its best, um, you know, you are getting information that I think the public actually cares about, um, not just sitting around drinking and, and hanging out at the piano bar, if that makes sense. Well, we'll get to that in a minute, but thank you very much for <laughs> pushing your way in and facilitating this interview today. We appreciate it. Now, look, to back to the serious business, you, you mentioned there yourself that this this is probably the most challenging geopolitical situation that, that Davos has seen in its 54 years. I think a few people have referred to the fact that it's the most complicated, complex uh, matrix of uh, political difficulties that are facing the leaders who are meeting there. So maybe just... Um, talk us through the main political issues that they were focused on going into this week and we can talk about whether or not they found any credible solutions at the end. Yeah, I mean, the first one, obviously, Ukraine. Um, and we've had Ukraine kind of been one of the main um, topics of conversation at Davos for the last two years. There's been a large uh, Ukrainian presence. But what was interesting this year is it started earlier. Now, Davos really doesn't kick off the World Economic Forum until Monday night. Um, but Zelensky um, uh, and the Swiss government kind of held peace talks, what they call talks about the peace formula on Sunday. Um, and we saw uh, 83 national security advisors be part of those talks. Um, so that was, that was sort of step one. And what was interesting about those talks is we've had uh, four of them before, but there were more countries involved in those talks who are what we call non-aligned mm. um, from the global south, and that was interesting. So that sort of kicked things off for us. Um, by the time Monday came around, the Swiss government and Zelensky said they were going to hold peace talks, and also there were pleas for China to get involved. China is Russia's ally, so that was kind of one of the main talking points is could China start to kind of be involved in these talks so that maybe, you know, because what's a peace talk if it doesn't involve um, Russia, um, and so that that sort of was a gen- was one of the big storylines that came out of here. I was just going to ask you in the context of what's going on in Ukraine, uh, you get a sense that the other thing that's prevailing over all of this um, and every question really, whether it's about the Red Sea or Ukraine, are the U.S. presidential elections um, and a large U.S. presence there. What was um, their sentiment around um, support for Ukraine during Davos? So Blinken and Sullivan, Anthony Blinken, uh, Secretary of State for the US, um, and Jake Sullivan, the NSA advisor, both gave uh, key speeches. They reiterated America's role in the world and America wanting to work with its allies around the world and to bring about peace um, and also its commitment to Ukraine. The issue is, however, you know, at the very same time we saw Donald Trump win the first contest on the way to his to his nomination to be the GOP candidate. Um, and so 
even as the Biden administration is saying that they want to give um, aid to Ukraine, the question will be whether a Republican Congress or a Republican administration, if um, Trump is elected, is going to allow for that. Um, and that's really sort of sort of almost created an urgency mm. um, around the sort of discussions here. And in some ways, it, it wasn't surprising to me that Zelensky and the Ukrainians added an extra day of programming on the Sunday because they needed to get in there. It's an urgent issue for them. But until we see um, if w- what happens with that election and whether there will be growing American support, um, it's not clear uh, Ukraine is going to get uh, any more arms. One thing we did see, however, is Zelensky did meet with a lot of bankers. So he spent time with JP Morgan, uh, Goldman Sachs, you name it, the banks from around the world um, to talk through raising money for reconstruction. Um, and we definitely saw that those were sort of successful talks and very positive. But on the sidelines, you know, we've spoken to some bankers who were saying, without peace, we can't reconstruct. So that's, you know, obviously an issue. Absolutely. And interesting you use the word urgency because that's definitely the sense you get really that they're trying to get commitments where they can in case um, the Donald Trump actually becomes president and they, they can't be sure of his support in by any manner or means. But when we're turning to the other big question um, and the conflict in Gaza, who is leading the efforts to, to look at that issue in particular? And was there any notice, noticeable progress in your view uh, as the week went on? Um, it's an interesting one. Uh, we, we have been pushing hard to understand what the uh, discussions may have looked like. We spoke to, spoke to a Norwegian uh, member of the Norwegian government who was talking through um, how allies are starting to talk through what um, Gaza's reconstruction could look like mm. um, and then what a government might um uh, what a government might look like there too. The issue is without peace, um, how can we go to reconstruction already? There is some talk that that could be a carrot, right, the idea, but then there's also questions who is going to invest in the reconstruction of Gaza. You know, the Middle East countries that have spent money on Gaza, um, you know, and then to watch it fall apart again um, might be reluctant. What is interesting here is that we've had a large uh, contingency of Middle Eastern leaders. So we had the Qatari PM, we've had representatives from the UAE, the Iraqi um, Prime Minister, as well as uh, the uh, Kurdish Prime Minister. Um, Unfortunately, the timing was not great. Just before the Iraqi PM was about to give a speech, Iran made their strikes um, in in the uh, area of Kurdistan uh, that everyone is now talking about. Um, And that's obviously caused some issues for that relationship. Um, And as we all know, the relationship between Iran and Iraq um, is is a a critical one at the same time as the relationship with the US. So that's sort of dominated the discussions. We've heard a lot from Middle Eastern countries saying this, the war cannot stop and the Red Sea can't be protected until uh, Israel stops uh, striking Gaza. Um, but we haven't seen concrete steps yet that could kind of define this practical pathway to statehood that's been mentioned before. Um, and so a lot of um, loud statements, a lot of uh, rhetoric, um, but not yet a, a sort of pathway that we can see has happened out of uh, Davos. Mm. Um, now, you've attended uh, this uh, year and I presume you went to a lot of the, the forums, heard a lot of the speeches. Was there somebody who stuck out for you this year or really impressed you? 
Um, so I was actually really interested in the Malay speech. Um, Avil Malay, obviously the new uh, president of, uh, of uh, Argentina, spoke for the first time. And, you know, he's, it's interesting. We were expecting this firebrand who would get up and uh, sort of say all of these uh, controversial statements to kind of the global elite. Um, and certainly um, on the sidelines when he was arriving, that seemed to be the feeling. But his speech was a great speech and it was well, very well attended and he he actually sounded far more um, uh, moderate, I guess, in that speech than we had seen before. He sounded like a lot of other leaders. So that was that was one that really stood out for me. The other thing um, I'm just going to bring up, uh, you know, some of the stuff on the sidelines where can often be the most interesting, especially uh, discussions about equality um, and giving people, uh, you know, access to all of this so-called goodness that's coming from the global elite talking to each other. Mm. Um, So I've really enjoyed some of those. I I met uh, a woman who is working in Sao Paulo uh, on funding uh, for people to get homes, to turn their favelas into their ownership of homes. There's some really interesting uh, stuff that goes on there, and I, I find those discussions pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, it is a, it's an economic forum at the end of the day as well. So what about the economy? Um, there's a lot of differing policies around the world. Again, all of these geopolitical issues affecting different interests. So on issues like um, interest rates, um, on issues like debt burden, um, what's coming out of it or what are they talking about in 2024, how they might as world leaders solve these big existential issues? Yeah, we expected interest rate policy to dominate the discussion here. Um, what we found is a fair amount of, uh, I guess, cautious optimism about rates around the world coming down, obviously tempered by concerns over inflation. Um, but most of the risk that um, we, we've been hearing about from CEOs or financiers and, and economists does come back to geopolitical events. Um, those include um, the many, many elections that are being held around the world this year, obviously what happens with the US government, but also um, what's happening with supply chains. I mean, the Red Sea is driving up the costs of goods once again. Um, There are still concerns that a widening Middle East war could make a difference to oil prices, and all of those have inflationary pressures. And if that occurs, you know, we aren't going to see the interest rate cuts as quickly as as perhaps people, the market certainly has been betting on. Yeah, and we heard earlier Ursula von der Leyen earlier, one of the other things she was talking about this week is we shouldn't all get ahead of ourselves for those interest rate decreases that many people might be factoring in for the first quarter of the year, mightn't be until much later. Uh, Leela, just before I let you go, um, you can understand uh, from the outside, this as as an event is often depicted as... um, Fat cats, billionaires, you know, the very wealthy in society uh, sitting around tables, chatting away at uh, social events um, and they don't have any real connection to our lives or our world. Now, I know you've mentioned there are NGOs present, but is that a fair assessment? You know, when we're looking at it from the outside, is any real business done there? Do you think they actually do help to solve world problems and make very valuable business connections? 
So, I mean, I think there's definitely parts of this that are about um, the elite getting together and there's definitely posturing that happens at Davos. But the things that I, I think are important, uh, we're in a, in a sort of geopolitical crisis and as one person said to me, we need as much d- diplomacy as we possibly can get. So in some ways what, what is interesting here is leaders being able to speak to other leaders, diplomats talking to each other, that talking is going going to help us get to peace. There's no doubt we about that. And it means that countries that are not allies, countries that are non-aligned, they can also start entering into those talks. And um, businesses and finance as well have, have a way of really putting on the line, hey, we want peace. So I think that is a worthwhile thing. The other thing that I think people are surprised and don't really realise about Davos, a big part of this is about inking deals. Mm. So You'll see all over the place um, countries, states, there's many states of India um, who send representative countries that need investment um, in order to develop. Um, and that um, it, this this is a critical event for them. I spoke to the Mongolian PM uh, a couple of days ago. You know, uh, it's an incredible situation for him. He's landlocked between Russia and China. Um, it's very important for him to attend an event like this so he can talk to um, various companies who might want to invest, but also to leaders and put his two cents in about how how important peace is uh, to his uh, country. Um, and, you know, Mongolia is a democracy and is going into elections this year. So this is an event that, that he said was critical to him. Well, look, that's a very interesting perspective. And certainly talking never hurts when you're trying to re- resolve these major conflicts. When Leela, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. That was Leela de Kretze, who is Global Breaking News Editor at Reuters. Leela, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up after the break, it's Russia's crazy brain drain. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, as we near the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the economic impact of that war there are becoming starkly clear to all of us. Um, certainly on a macro level, maybe things don't seem as bad as we thought they were, but surging inflation, double-digit interest rates are all biting in to the quality of the lives of people on the ground there. I'm joined now by Jason Corcoran, who's a freelance journalist. He's been writing about the Russian economy and he's got an interesting take on the Russian brain drain because there's incentives being uh, offered by Vladimir Putin specifically to tech workers to try and woo them to stay in that country. Jason, thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, Mandy. Indeed, there, you know, perennially in Russia and the Soviet Union, there has always been some sort of brain drain. Uh, if you go back to the Soviet era, there was, they were actually curtailed from leaving the country because of strict uh, controls. But when Gorbachev came in and introduced Glasnost, there was a lot of people left, especially uh, IT workers, and they were leaving to the States and also to Israel. Uh, again, we're seeing this brain drain basically because the people don't want to be drafted into Putin's meat grinder. So we had a mobilization in September, a little over a year ago, and that, that, that led to one million men, a lot of them who worked in the IT sector, uh, fleeing the country and going to the States and going to places like Latvia and Yerevan and Baku. And then you had a further 300,000 men who were actually drafted. And now those who remain are fearful 
there could be another mobilization after the election. But in the meantime, Putin is trying to effectively bribe them to stay in the country. So those, those numbers um, in terms of how many people are leaving the country are absolutely incredible, whether it's being drafted into the war or fleeing themselves. Maybe just look a little bit more, Jason, if you would, at the incentives that uh-huh. Putin is offering for uh, those particular sector of workers to try and keep them there. W- what's the sell? So if you're a key worker in the IT sector, uh, basically the, the economy ministry has come out and said there is a shortage of between 600,000 and 700,000 IT workers. But if you stay, you get an exemption from the military draft and you're offered a 5% mortgage. Uh, the current mortgage rate um, to, to, in the, from Russian lenders is anything between 16 to 20%. And the base rate of the central bank at the moment is 60%. So that's huge incentive. But it comes with a catch, Mandy. You have to stay for five years. And if you change jobs or if you're sacked or if you emigrate, then you lose that deal. And the 5% rate doubles overnight to mm. 10%. Now, in the article that I was talking about there, you mentioned the, um, the story of Anton Krasicki and, and his wife who are kind of deliberating what they will do. But actually, the story itself, um, beyond the incentives to stay, actually depict um, what I think is, you know, it's not unusual in Russia that you have a society of two halves where the wealthy are very wealthy and the poor people who are suffering terribly on the other side of things completely. But, you know, in their evaluation, they're they're aiming to get this super duper house or super duper apartment. Uh, and that's kind of, isn't it? it it's kind of indicative of, of the two sides of what's happening in Russia at the moment. Absolutely. And with the uh, uh, soaring inflation and interest rates, you, you have people who are on social welfare or on pensions and they earn a meagre, say, if you're, if you're your average monthly pension in Russia is 18,000 rubles, which is about 180 euros. And with, you know, foodstuffs, things like eggs have jumped last year by 60% to about, I think, something in the region of about uh, 100 to 200 rubles. And that's about 1 euro 60 uh, or 2 euros, which to our minds is, is, is nothing. But with your, you're only bringing home 180 euros effectively a month. It's a lot uh, out of your budget. So for Anton, he's in a very, who I've known for quite a while, he's in a very, very, very good predicament. So he had been pondering moving with his family to Serbia. Serbia is one of the very, very few places in, in Europe where uh, Russians feel welcome. They can get visas. And there's no real Russia phobia, unlike in some other places that uh, other Russians who've emigrated have experienced. So if he goes there, he, he may get a job. Uh, he may not. But if he stays... He has a lucrative job, albeit with that catch that he has to stay for five years. Mm. Now, it's not the only sector that's suffering from a skills shortage. The, the governor of the central bank has been out warning about gaps in the professional market. What other areas are suffering from this um, exodus of people or the drafting? Yeah, so, so while Vladimir Putin boasts of record low unemployment, his, his loyal uh, central banker, Elvira Nubulina, uh, she was complaining last month of increased shortages in, in, in very vital sectors in manufacturing, transport, logistics and construction. And then business owners who I've been in touch with uh, themselves in, in small to medium uh, enterprises are also highlighting a scarcity of everything from engineers to people who, who work on farms, in, in food production and in manufacturing. Mm. So it, it, the, the overall sort of picture is 
has really been masked. You can cherry pick the the good uh, economic data, but if you look underneath, there's some very serious long-term uh, structural problems. Mm. Jason, you mentioned as well there the, the economy of Russia and um, maybe you might take a, a moment to talk us through what the economic impact has been of this war on Russia. Are the sanctions working? Um, is the economy holding up? Is it being propped up by the war? What's your overall evaluation? So in, in Western sanctions have failed completely to curb Russia's vital oil and gas sector well, actually, the oil sector, the gas sector is on its knees because the pipelines have been destroyed, allegedly, by the Ukrainians, the vital Nord Stream 1 pipeline that was bringing natural gas across the Baltics into Germany and in Western Europe. That, that's gone. But the vital oil sector, I mean, the receipts for oil, mainly, they bring in something in the region of 25 to 28 percent of the federal budget. So the Russians have been able to uh, change their export market away from Europe towards India, China, and Turkey. And so they're still getting these huge tax receipts. Uh, but looking into the long term, I think their production is, is, is in trouble because uh, they are, were relying on Western uh, technology to try to tap into these hard-to-discover uh, reserves uh, in the tundra in the Arctic North. But without this critical Western technology, I think you're going to see their production beginning to flatline and to, to, to fall. And what about, um, Jason, inward investment? So those big projects like the one at Vostok, um, uh, how are they faring there with attracting international investors? Yeah, so there was, prior to the war, there was a number of large commodity traders that had signed up to take part in Vostok. Vostok is, according to Rosneft, which is Russia's largest oil producer, it is the biggest oil project in the world. And they had planned to build something like eight towns, two airports, uh, new railway lines, and, and, a, and a big electricity grid to service this, uh, this project. But Trafiga and a number of other commodity houses have pulled out. And Igor Session, the chief executive of Rosneft, has, has been trying to pitch to other investors in non-Western countries in Saudi Arabia, and he's been to China twice, he's been rebuffed, but he's heading to Beijing with a new presentation. So without inward investment, I, I think the, the future for, for Vostok oil, in, if it's located in the tundra in the northern Ural, is in serious jeopardy. Yeah, so their energy exports have held up. They've just found different markets. They haven't been as successful at continually attracting the type of investment they need for those big, large-scale projects. But what about the macroeconomics of the country? We saw some figures out last week suggesting that maybe things hadn't declined as much as we expected. Um, I, I think, you know, if you, look, if you look at the overall, the top-line figures, it looks, it looks rosy. But as, as we know, Manny, in this country, we, we have this leprechaun economics phenomenon whereby, you know, our growth is vastly inflated by U.S. multinationals exploiting our low corporate tax uh, to do their accounting maneuvers. So similarly in Russia, it, it, it's actually overheating the economy because it's hooked on military steroids because a third of the growth in Russia is related to the war economy. Mm. And that masks those long-term problems. Jason, you mentioned earlier, you know, other commodities that are like in short supply um, in Russia. Uh, and I was reading the story of Margarita Sovia, I think is her name, a pensioner that you referenced. Um, 
her story is also incredible and also depicts the other side of Russia where there are food shortages. Maybe you just talk to us a bit about why there's things like um, called the egg wars now in, in Russia and, and how that's manifesting itself in small towns uh, that are way outside Russia and the large urgent urban areas. Yes, so over the holiday period, Russia's, Russians t- tend to splurge. The holiday period, it was actually Russian Christmas on January 7th, which is a different calendar. The people splurge on fine wines, Russian champagne or Western champagne if they could afford it. And they really like to have eggs for this multitude of Russian salads. And um, they like, like meat and stuff. So, But this year, there's been an unparalleled shortage of eggs. And uh, there's been so-called egg wars. And I've, I monitor telegram, telegram channels, this encrypted app mm. in Russia. And we've seen queues for people at agricultural fairs for eggs. And prices have jumped by as much as 50% last year. And there's also been a shortage of frozen chickens. And the FSB, the, the local security service, is, is clamping down on people who both buy. And there's been there's a video of a guy who was were very forcibly detained by the FSB. And then there was a chap, um, Gennady Shireyev, who is basically, he's the director of the, the poultry farm in Voronezh, in western Voronezh. He was shot mm. twice while he was driving away from his factory in his Volkswagen. So there are severe shortages, which is reminiscent for a lot of people of the Soviet Union when long queues and for basically scraps of meat and bread was a daily reality. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson. I'm chatting to Jason Corcoran, who's a freelance journalist, and we're talking about what's happening in the Russian economy. Jason, do you think that Russia is becoming an even more authoritarian state as this war in Ukraine develops? So what I think overall you're seeing is the re-Sovietization of the Russian economy because uh, they need to come up with a new idea, so they're going back to the old ideas. So uh, you had Vyacheslav um, um, Volodin, who's a very powerful speaker of the State Duma. He was addressing his colleagues as uh, dear comrades uh, <laughs> late last year, and talking about moving to this command economy and using Putin's ruling party, the United Russia, as the new Soviet party. Uh, so, yeah, but this is a, an idea uh, which is, is very flawed and uh, it's probably doomed to failure. Um, so, Jason, just to conclude now, um, two years on, your assessment of how uh, Russia is coping with this war from a kind of domestic economic perspective, is their biggest problem now people? Is it money or is it the length of the war? Um, I, I think um, they probably have enough contract soldiers for the uh, front lines, and they have the ability to mobilize additional um, soldiers after the, the elections, which Putin inevitably will win with a landslide because there's just a systemic opposition who will line up against him. But what we're seeing across Russia, you know, this is a vast country, the biggest country in the world, is 10 time zones. The regions have been told to start tightening their belts. Actually, there was a decree late last year um, instructing seven regions, including Chechnya and Dagestan, in the southern Caucasus to slash their deficits, deficits or risk losing their subsidies. Chechnya, which is, has been very restive, and of course, Putin, when he came into power in 2000, launched a war against uh, the um, partisans in Chechnya. They, they receive 300 billion rubles in, in annual subsidies. That's about 
3 billion euros, and that's a lot. Mm. And they don't have much oil or many commodities. And their warlord leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, said, I swear to Allah that we won't last three months not even one month without those subsidies. Mm. Look, it's a costly affair and back to where we started with the incentives for the IT um, workers. I mean, everything that they're doing now is costing money so it's bound to impact on the overall economy eventually. But Jason, thank you very much for spending some time with us today and giving us that fascinating analysis. That was Jason Corcoran. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Coming up after the break, I'll be joined by Anna Gordon from Time Magazine. We'll be delving into the origins and the objectives of the Houthi rebels. Stay with us. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, for our final item today, as the conflict in Gaza continues, the attacks on shipping along the coast of Yemen have increased. And as we heard earlier, it has been a large part of the discussion at the World Economic Forum this week. But who exactly are the Houthi tribe? And what are these attacks on shipping lanes? Uh, why are they causing so much geopolitical turmoil? Well, I'm delighted that Anna Gordon from Time Magazine is joining me now to discuss Annie you're very welcome to News Talk. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Now, Anna, I, we often have these conversations and, and sometimes, you know, words and, and groups and names slip into everyday parlance. And, and I think that's the way it is for a lot of people with the Houthi tribes and, and the Houthi rebels, like knowing exactly who they are and what their ambition and objectives are is often lost on many people. So we might start there with your simplest version of who they are, uh, how and when they were set up and what exactly is their overarching objective. Yeah, so uh, I think maybe the most important thing to remember is that the Houthis uh, have been around for a pretty long time. Um, they are now currently one of the two main factions controlling Yemen in the current Yemeni civil war. Um, but they have been around uh, before the civil war as well. They started as a revival movement for a sect of Islam called Zaydi Islam, which uh, a lot of people categorize as Shia Islam, but it is uh, kind of different from oh, the Shia Islam that you might see in Iran or Lebanon, um, but in some ways still similar. But uh, and historically, uh, that group of people uh, felt frustrated with um, with kind of Saudi Arabian influence in Yemen and uh, particularly the gro- growth of Salafi Islam, which they saw as opposed to them, um, and also just cultural rights and um, just general frustrations uh, across Yemen with corruption and mismanagement of the government. And uh, so, yeah, so initially this started as like a cultural revival group in the early 90s. And then um, by the 2000s, um, you started to see uh, some insurgency against the government uh, by the Houthis against the Yemeni government. And that's around the early 2000s is when you see the Houthis start uh, become, uh, they became called Houthis. They were named after uh, one of their leaders, um, Hussein al-Houthi, who was killed uh, by the Yemeni government, and that became um, the name that they now go by, although their preferred name is, is Ansar Allah. Uh, I think the reason um, that they have uh, kind of become important in this uh, Israel-Gaza situation is uh, the Houthis now control a part of uh, the Yemeni territory um, on the northern northern part of the country. Uh, basically, they have a, a lot of control over the Red Sea. Hmm. And that is where about 15% of all global trade has to flow through um, in order to get through to the Suez Canal, which is really the only passageway um, between 
to get, um, you know, via ocean to get to um, between Asia and Europe. Otherwise, you would have to sail around the entire the entire coast of Africa, uh, which can add up to 30 days uh, to travel time. And, you know, most of our, our shipping that we see is is done. Um, you know, most of the goods that you and I all consume are transported uh, via ship. Um, because that is much more cost effective than, you know, transporting it via air or something mm. like that. Yeah. And, and that's an important part of what is happening now um, in, in the Red Sea and the consequences of that for all of us, actually. Um, uh, we, we might discuss in a moment in terms of um, how it affects things, everything from interest rates to insurance costs and all of that. But just back to their objectives for a second, I'd like to just explore a little bit more about their strategic interest in the war in Gaza. You might just um, explain to us um, where their allies are and where their allegiances lie. Yeah. So I think uh, in the media, you've seen a lot of people talk about them as a proxy of Iran. I think that might be a, a slight uh, misinterpretation of what's going on just based on uh, experts that I have spoken to. I think, you know, the Houthis, their main goal is to be seen as the legitimate uh, sovereign leaders of Yemen, um, which, you know, as as we know, is currently in a civil war. So uh, for them, any attempt to kind of legitimize themselves to their uh, own domestic audience is really important. And the Palestinian cause in particular is one of the most um, uncontroversial causes within the Arab world. I know that might be different Mm. uh, West, (laughs) but within the Arab world, certainly it is not a controversial issue. It is, you know, one of uh, kind of the most universally agreed upon issues um, you know, that you can have in the political sphere in a place like Yemen. Um, so I think uh, my understanding, you know, and uh, from from talking to experts, and I think, you know, you might find people with differing opinions, but I, I kind of read this more as um, a way to, this was initially a bid for them to get a lot of domestic support. Mm. And then I think um, on top of that, there is also a lot of, uh, you know, the Houthis are really, their their main grievance is against Saudi Arabia, which, um, has been backing uh, the other main faction in the Yemen's, Yemeni civil war. And, um, you know, and as we know, historically, they've had a lot of grievances against Saudi Arabia and the influences of, you know, um, that kind of uh, strain of Islam that was coming out of Saudi Arabia. So I think there was also anger against, you know, uh, the Saudi-Israel normalization deal, which would strengthen, um, you know, Saudi's ties with the United States. Um, so, so they had kind of... Um, you know, a few things to gain from getting involved in this in this war. One, it makes them look uh, good to their own population. And uh, two, you know, and they're they're hoping that they can get allies who are not just, you know, maybe their typical uh, mm. allies, but, you know, be be able to appeal um, across to to maybe different parts of Yemen that they wouldn't traditionally appeal to by um, targeting uh, ships in the Red Sea and supporting the Palestinian cause. At the same time, it's also making Saudi Arabia look bad. Yeah, and 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 look, just in your explaining where their allies are, you can start to see why it has become such a geopolitical issue so quickly and how it has escalated um, so fast. Because as you say, there are a lot of commentary about this would be that they're acting as a proxy for Iran. And that's not necessarily the case. I know a lot of experts um, dispute that, but it has become a very big issue, this this activity in the Red Sea, very, very quickly. Why, why do you think there has been intervention um, from from states like the US and even from the UK so quickly? 
No, I think that the biggest factor here, I, I think there's a couple things going on. Um, the main thing being uh, just the the level that this disrupts global trade, um, because this is such a choke point uh, for such a huge uh, percentage of, of the goods that we're getting um, that all of us rely on. And I think there's a, a, a feeling in, in the United States that this is un, unsustainable if this were to go on for um, much longer. I do, I do know from talking to experts that trying to uh, militarily uh, defend against these missile attacks is, is quite difficult when you're at sea mm. because uh, these ships, they do have to re, uh, restock their some of their uh, supplies um, only, and they can only do that by going to, uh, going back to land. Mm. Uh, so some of these anti-missile defense systems, um, these ships need to go and replenish their supply and go back to land every single time those anti-missile defense systems are are used. So that can get um, expensive and very complicated um, over a long period of time. Um, so I think there was probably also a feeling of um, because it would be unsustainable to only be defensive for such a long period of time. I, I'm guessing that part of the strategy was uh, will attack so attack uh, so that they won't be able to shoot these missiles in the first place, and then that. Um, maybe would be more cost effective in the future. Mm. Right. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And, and that leads us to an important question, really, about uh, the Houthis themselves and who's actually funding them. So are they getting their um, artillery and their 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 own weapons from Iran? Are they funded by other states or, or where do they actually get their funding from? Some of it is, is uh, you know, there's certainly like... Um, uh, funding themselves to some degree, I'm not sure the exact extent, um, and I know that they they uh, do do buy and get some some military support from Iran, but it's unclear as to exactly um, how to what extent uh, this is um, how who's funding them and exactly how much. Uh, they're certainly getting a lot of um, you know support from their own population. Um, are definitely you know first and foremost acting within Yemen's domestic mm-hmm. politics. Explain to us a little bit about how logistically this can start affecting things like exports and imports and how the supply chain could ultimately be affected by this. Well, um, I do know that when I started reporting on this, um, you know, at that point, the war risk premiums for ships was about um, 0.1%. And that was about a month and a half ago. And I saw another report in Reuters um, I think this week that it was about 1%. So that's a, a 10 times increase in um, the war risk premium that ships are paying. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that uh, ins- insurance premium is based on the value of the ship. So 1% of um, the entire value of the ship versus um, 0.1%. And I imagine that before the war started, it was even lower than that. So uh, we're already seeing a huge um, increase in insurance premiums. We're seeing a lot of ships choose to do um, the route around um, Africa, um, so which is going to just make t- make everything um, go more slowly. A lot of goods that you're used to getting, uh, you might expect some of them to to come later. I think it's you know likely that we're going to start seeing some effects on markets. Right. Although um, we'll we'll I don't know what it will look like till it happens. Yeah. But um, certainly there's a huge amount of um, trade that is being affected on uh, by this. About fifteen percent of global trade. So here in Ireland we had the Irish Exports Association out just this week warning because we're obviously at the very end of of the supply chain in Europe so it could could start affecting businesses here uh, very significantly very quickly so that's something that's definitely on our radar. Finally Anna and very briefly what what's your estimation of what will happen in the coming weeks? 
Um, I'm really curious to see if um, the Houthis attempt to strike um, more or if, if they're either going to, I think, yeah, that's that's where um, my eyes are and, and what I'm looking to see is, are they going, going to kind of accelerate this military conflict? Are they going to uh, provoke more? Are we going to see more uh, missile strikes or are we going to actually see a decrease and are they going to back down? Because, um, you know, again, going from that, that uh, domestic angle. I don't know how it looks for them to uh, suddenly back down in front of their people. Mm. Um, but they, that still might be a choice they choose to make. But, um, you know, there is certainly uh, for them a lot on the line on appearing as though uh, they are standing up for uh, the Palestinian cause and that they are standing up against the West. You know, that's always been a huge part of their platform is uh, criticizing the role of Western interventions in um, the Arab and Muslim world. So, you know, I think it, it will be really interesting to see whether they kind of choose to escalate this further or back down. And I really don't know which way it will go. Absolutely. But look, at they are certainly part of a much bigger and wider geopolitical debate. Anna, thank you very much for taking the time, though, to go into their history with us today. That was Anna Gordon from Time magazine. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Just a reminder that why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Thanks to all of today's guests. The producer of Taking Stock was John Fardy, Stephen Daunt and Simon Keane were on research and Hugo De Silva Scott was on sound. If you've got any comments about today's show, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. Anton is up next with all of your Sunday newspapers and lots more. But from now, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.